All right. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this time of hearing your word read in our hearing, I pray, Lord, that it would have its work. I pray, Lord, that it would indeed be an anchor to our heart and soul, that it would take deep root down in our mind, so that, Lord, we may dwell in it continually, and that, Lord, it might feed us and nourish us and be a continual source of joy through your Holy Spirit. But I pray that you'd help us to put aside, in a way, all distractions, thoughts of this week or this weekend or what's to come. But, Lord, help us uh, to be uh, fully here. And, Lord, as our minds may drift here and there, I pray, Lord, that they would uh, quickly come back. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, the text this, uh, this evening does say Matthew 9, 9 through 13, 18 through 26. Um, we're just going to go through the whole thing to 26. So I sent it that way, kind of broken up, uh, but then changed course. So my apologies for that. I'll be reading from the uh, NIV. And by the way, this is, it's not been 65 years since I preached my first sermon. Uh, but this is the Bible given to me many years ago when I became a student of theology and, uh, and seminary under the care of Second Presbyterian. So this Bible has been um, in many parts of the country and the world. And so if you're from the ESV, just hang with me. Okay. All right. Would you please stand for the re- reading of God's word this evening? From Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 26. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? He answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new new wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. When she had said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but is asleep. They laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, 
and she got up. News of this spread throughout all the region. Heavenly Father, again, have your work through your word in our hearts and mind. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, by the way, I do want to make uh, one comment. It is uh, wonderful to have um, elders who are so capable in leading worship and in taking time walking us through uh, the confession of faith and through prayer time. So where's Private King? There's, there he is. Okay. I just want to uh, thank you for your ministry and, and good work among us. So uh, speaking of which, um, I, so our military folks, I love you all. How many of you are airborne qualified? Anybody in here? Okay, I'll remind you that pride is a sin that should be repented of <laughs> at all occasions. So, all right, enough of this, because I really do want you to, your mind to be on the gospel, not on my uh, spectacular uh, sense of humor. So in Matthew chapter 9, the scene is set. Jesus is in Capernaum. And I often forget that, Jesus, that Capernaum was really Jesus' hometown. I always think Nazareth and Bethlehem and things like that. But Capernaum was really his home. And it was this place early on where so many of his uh, miracles had been uh, performed. Things that were just not seen. Not just healing the sick, the diseased, but also the demon-possessed. And those who had been paralyzed. And Jesus was healing them all. And on top of these miraculous works that were being done, Jesus has just concluded the Sermon on the Mount, which left people nearly speechless, especially given when people would ask teachers, well, what are your thoughts on this? Or what about this? And the, the rabbis would always quote other rabbis and other teachers, and Jesus never did that. He taught as one who had authority. He spoke directly as one as if from heaven and not needing to quote get validated from anybody else. So here you have someone who is unlike anyone and in a powerful and incredible way. And now up to this point, or right as we're coming into it, he has healed a leper who he also healed the servant of a Roman centurion, Peter's mother-in-law. He cast demons into a herd of pigs and even calmed a storm. Now it's one thing if you try to trick people here and there. But I've tried many times to calm a thunderstorm, and it does not cooperate. But Jesus does this, and the, 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 the sea or the lake becomes still. No one's ever seen anything like this. And then in Matthew chapter 9, we pick it up where Matthew is there doing his work, and Jesus has come to his tax collector's booth, some place that no one ever wanted to go to. There's a reason why people put off paying their taxes until April 15th. No one wants to, but we do this. We give it eventually or even begrudgingly, but it has to be done. But we mail in checks or we set up some other kind of system. We are rarely handing money over to an individual. We would have been handing our actual money over to Matthew, who will then take a portion of that and send it on to Rome. No one liked tax collectors. They were a bit of a pariah, or they, they, were, they were people who were always on the outskirts, never really welcomed and enjoyed. And of course, certainly Matthew knew this, but that did not stop Jesus from approaching Matthew's tax collector's booth. And he walks up to Matthew and just says two simple words, follow me. 
it is very likely that Matthew, being in Capernaum, has heard many things about Jesus, perhaps seen some of his miracles. It is very likely that he was there at the Sermon on the Mount because, for instance, the entire, and the entirety of that sermon is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. So as Matthew is writing about Jesus coming to tax collector's booth, who is he writing about? Himself. Do you ever have that blessing, I hope you do, where you meet someone who as an adult has come to faith? You know, I grew up in the church. My wife grew up in the church. Um, she had a, for her, she believed she came to faith maybe even as a, as a four-year-old. She just believed. But every once in a while you meet someone maybe in their 40s, and they can tell you that day, that moment, when they really believed that they were born again, that they were brought into the family of God. And all of a sudden, Matthew goes, he's approaching my booth? And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and goes. Now, Luke's gospel also records this. And there's a little bit more detail. But Matthew, I think, wants to kind of not necessarily play it down, but he's not trying to emphasize that he left his profession there. That's what Luke's gospel gives the idea of. He left his money. He left his everything behind. Luke, Matthew just says, I... He got up and followed. Now, what is worse than a tax collector? Many tax collectors. And that's what you have at the dinner that Matthew throws for Jesus. He throws a dinner, he throws a banquet, and there's tax collectors wall to wall. This is horrible. Especially if you're a Pharisee. And then all of a sudden, not just tax collectors, but sinners. It doesn't tell us what kind of sinners, just sinners. And I have to tell you, one of the things that I enjoy about being an army chaplain is I don't have to convince them they're sinners. They know. They know they're sinners. Happy are the ones who come to repentance. But there are sinners in this place. There's tax collectors all over the place. And I do find it funny uh, that there are also Pharisees there too. Why are the Pharisees at Matthew's house? I tend to think that Matthew sent out invitations. He would have sent out to all the people who are in the community who are of some import. He certainly invited his tax collector friends and those sinners, by the way, who probably were the only friends he had. But he says Pharisees come too, as well as John the Baptist's disciples. You come as well. This would have been talk about an eclectic group. This would have been a little strange. But nevertheless, they are all in there together. And the Pharisees say not to Jesus, but they say to his disciples, Why is your teacher? You could follow lots of teachers. Why is your teacher eating with a tax collector and sinner? Now their words are not recorded. Maybe they said nothing at all. Maybe they didn't know what to say. I mean, they've just seen him calm a storm and do these incredible things. They're probably speechless. Maybe they just, we don't know why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, to be honest with you. But here we are. And Jesus speaks up, as the disciples are lost for words at the moment. And he makes it clear. People are sick. And Jesus says the doctor has come to heal. He says to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this phrase, 
Go and learn what this means, which was a rabbinical expression. So when you had people that you were teaching who were uh, studying to be uh, rabbis or Pharisees, which you know means holy ones, and they're kind of getting it wrong, the phrase you would say back to them is, go and learn. Go and open the scrolls again. Go back and study. So Jesus, who did not attend the school of Gamaliel, or anyone else for that matter, is telling the Pharisees, I love this, hey, go and learn. You're missing something. You're wrong. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting Hosea. And during this time in which uh, the Lord is speaking to Hosea, to his people, there was no concern for justice for the oppressed. There was no concern that the right be done for those who were poor, for those who were hungry, for the widows, for the orphans. There wasn't concern showed for these people. Instead, the concern was, well, is this a tenth of dill? Is this a tenth of the spice? We want to make sure we get that right. These sacrifices, let's make sure they are correct. But other than that, the true weightier matters of God's word were not a concern of theirs. And that's why God says, your sacrifices are a stench to, the, to me. I don't like them. It smells horrible. Stop it. But go and address these things first because what I really desire is mercy, compassion, that my people would be recognized by other nations for these things and then make your sacrifices. Do not neglect anything. So Jesus is hitting back at the Pharisees and saying, where is your mercy? Because these people are sick. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And in Luke's gospel, it says, uh, call them to repentance. As I said a moment ago, the sinners, they know they're sinners. The tax collectors, they probably know they're sinners. Who here in the text do not know that they are sinners? Pharisees. And Jesus will soon call them out saying, you are whitewashed tombs. You have dead man's bones in them, which is a ghastly thing to accuse them of. But this is exactly who you are, Pharisees. In fact, the fact that they know that they're sinners and they desire me, they're actually healthier than you are. But you don't know it. And then John's disciples uh, uh, chime in and they ask the question, well, we fast, and the Pharisees fast. Your disciples don't fast. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, I don't think they cooperated in anything. They had hardly anything in common. But they do have this in common. And so they go right up to Jesus, and it's like, why aren't they fasting? Which I have to tell you is a curious thing to ask at a banquet. But nevertheless, the question is asked, and Jesus replies saying, the Messiah is here, the bridegroom is here, and while they are there, they don't fast, they celebrate, they feast. There will be a time when the bridegroom will be away, and then it will be the time for fasting. Then it will be time for those things, but not now. And I love the picture that we see in Revelation, that when finally the bride is gathered back to the bridegroom, what does it say we're going to do? 
feast and banquet. We get to go back and do it. The time for that is not yet come, says Jesus to them. And while he's having this discussion, something happens. Picking up in verse 18, which by the way also, if, you're, if you want to follow in some ways in Luke's gospel, it says that Jairus is a, first of all he names him Jairus, and he is a synagogue ruler. So while they're having all these discussions, all of a sudden a man, a man enters into the house of the courtyard. And his expression is one that is very, very different from everybody else's. He has just come from where his daughter has died. And he comes and does the only thing he can do. He comes looking for Jesus, which again, where is Jesus? Well, we've heard he's at Matthew's house. Matthew, tax, the tax collector? Yes. He makes a beeline for the tax collector's home, which he's probably never entered into before. But he goes and he makes a direct line for Jesus and falls at his knees. My daughter has just died, but come lay your hands on her and she will live. The tormented heart and mind of a parent whose child is suffering is awful. Those of you who have been in a situation, maybe some of you are, where your children are suffering in some way, it is hard. It is hard sometimes to even go to sleep at night, worrying about how they are, how it is going with them, what's going to transpire. It will eat away at our thoughts and our attention like nothing else. And he comes in and he says, please come. And I love the response of Jesus. What does Jesus do? Simply says, and Jesus got up and said to his disciples. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you go and you're needing help? And the first thing someone does is get it from their chair. I love that sight. It means something. It's powerful. And Jesus is going to put aside his status as the honored guest. He has no doubt the seat of honor and the attention. And he sees Jairus. He hears his request and without a further word gets up immediately and follows. And so does the disciples. As they are on their way, a woman is following close behind. She too has likely heard that the teacher who silences Pharisees and works miracles is at the house of Matthew. You can almost see the picture. She suddenly sees this crowd leaving with Jairus and Jesus at the front. Now the Bible tells us that she has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So when in this time... Has she been able to go to the temple? Has she been able to go to the synagogue? Does she embrace many people? No, why? It makes them unclean, right? This is a woman who is very much alone and by herself in every regard. Have you ever found yourself when you have a series of calamities come in your life and you go, what did I do to deserve this? We often say that, even if we're not really thinking it. I know many people do. Well, that's expressed several times in the Bible. When all those things happened to Job, now Job didn't say that, but who did? His friends, his trusted advisors, you, surely you did something. Or another case where the tower collapses and Jesus says, I suppose you think they were really bad sinners more so than anyone else. No, 
They weren't. So it's likely that maybe she's asking the question, what did I do? What did I do? No help, no healing. And maybe her friend's going, you, should have done, you, you must have done something to incur this. So she's alone. She's by herself. And she reasons, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak. Remember that song? I'm not sure if it's in the Trinity Psalter. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. Anybody grow up singing that song? I did. Where she gets the idea, if I can just touch his cloak, that's enough. I don't know. You may recall in the Old Testament, there is an account uh, where uh, people are hastily burying their friend. And he accidentally, he, he, they th- pretty much toss him in. And he hits the bones of Elijah and comes alive. Maybe she's thinking, if I can just, I just, I just need to touch So we know that Jesus was in a crowd. Luke's gospel is a little bit more uh, developed in this way. And she pushes through knowing that every person she's touching is what? Becoming unclean. She has a singular focus. His cloak, his cloak, his cloak. And she reaches out and touches it. And in Luke's gospel it says instantly she felt she was healed. And what does she want to do? She wants to disappear, right? Have you ever been in a crowd and you're like, if I could really disappear, that would be great. Well, especially now. And in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus stop and go, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. Look at this huge crowd. Stop. Who touched me? And the disciples going, there's all these people, and yet you ask, who touched me? And Jesus said, I felt power go out from me. Who touched me? And finally, this woman who does not want to be recognized... It's me. Now, was Jesus being unkind here? One would think that perhaps the compassionate thing to do is just let her quietly go away. But instead, Jesus uses this opportunity to make it known to everyone present. She is healed. She is clean. She is restored. And he makes sure everyone hears that. What a blessing. And in this passage, Jesus says to her, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And so he enters now into the the home of Jairus where there is loud music of grief and sorrow. Uh, Instruments are being played to express the, uh, the, the woe and the sorrow for her passing. It's interesting, the contrast in noises. On the one hand, you have the noises of the banquet and of the dinner. On the other hand, you have these in this house. And Jesus walks in and says, she has not died, uh, she's only asleep. Now, it's interesting. This passage reminds me, in fact, I I preached on this last time with uh, Lazarus, where Jesus says to his disciples, we need to go to see Lazarus because he's fallen asleep. And his disciples say, Well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up, or someone else will wake him up. And Jesus just bluntly says, Jesus has died. Jesus is dead. Or Lazarus is dead. There seems to be an element here. uh, People can recognize, generally speaking, when someone has passed. A number of, of physical manifestations are clear about this. 
But I think in Jesus' mind, in that sense, she's asleep because he's about to raise her. She has the appearance of death, but she's going to be raised. So he puts everyone out, despite their laughter, and simply touches the hand of the dead girl, and she gets up. And word of this spreads everywhere. Now, in Luke's gospel, does anyone remember how old she is? She's 12. And how long has the woman had her infirmity? 12 years. It's possible, it's argued, that an entire family's been healed in this one instance. It could be that this, her infirmity began when her daughter was born 12 years ago. It's an interesting point, won't belabor it, but it is indeed a, a work that Jesus does. But our greatest need for healing is not from a physical disease. From people I know that are suffering from depression, that's not their greatest need either. Nor is deliverance from death our greatest need. This passage should remind us a bit of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, when the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus and says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mentioned a moment ago that at Matthew's house, there is Jesus at the place of honor. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, now when you go to an event, a dinner, don't sit at the high place of honor because then the host has to come along and go, <laughs> I'm afraid we need to move you down further down the, the echelons of, of honor here. Jesus would have had the central place the most honored seat of all. He would have been waited on. He's the very focus of this entire event. And he gets up to accompany a mourning father to heal a shamed woman and to touch the hand of a dead girl raising her to life. In a similar way, Jesus, who is in the throne room of heaven, enjoying the uninterrupted fellowship and presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit, the adoration and worship of angels. And he gets up and sets that aside and puts on human flesh and comes into our suffering and into this fallen world which he created in spectacular fashion calling it all good, and now it has fallen. And he comes into all of that that he might have mercy on the sick and touch and heal them. Not to, to conquer Rome or to gain wealth, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that in Isaiah's gospel, the scriptures tell us that by his stripes we are what? Healed. 
It is not by his stripes on the cross that we are healed from uh, disease or, or sadness or things like of that nature, and we can come to that in a moment. But of our spiritual sickness, our disease of sin, which we are born into this life, every one of us, sinful, sick at birth, and desperate need of salvation, and desperate need of the cure of the gospel that only Jesus provides. So that even if we go through this life having never been sick, no infirmity, no uh, concern of the heart, um, all of the, the children graduate from the finest colleges and marry the finest people, all the things, but we, we, we leave this life without Christ. What does it gain us, the Bible says? Nothing, and even worse than that, an eternity away from God, suffering always. That's our first and greatest need, so that when Jesus works a miracle, for instance, the, 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 the dividing of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000, was it just so they wouldn't be hungry? I mean, he wanted to satisfy their hunger, but is it just that? Or is it to demonstrate that he, as the bread of heaven, eternally satisfies? That he is the one who your soul is truly hungry for? Or that when Jesus restores sight to the blind, is it just so they wouldn't suffer so they could have good vision again? Or was it so that they could, he could demonstrate that the gospel takes the scales from our eyes so that we can see him in his glory and splendor and embrace him? That's why the gospel, that's why the miracles are there. They aren't just to ease human suffering, although that's a part of that. If we are not healed spiritually, then nothing else truly matters. But for those of you who are in Christ and are suffering, I do have a, a word of encouragement for you. One comes from Revelation 21. We have this promise that in the life to come, Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Uh, on Monday of Memorial Day a couple of weeks ago, I went over to the uh, cemetery uh, just outside the gate there at uh, now Fort Liberty and walked around and it occurred to me there are no cemeteries in heaven. There's not one tombstone in all of heaven. There are no memorials. There's none of that. And as I looked around, there were people um, seated on a blanket in front of the tombstone of a loved one. I was walking past um, one, and there was a, uh, a number of flower arrangements, and a man was walking towards me, and it turned out to be a son. And we had a good long conversation about how much he loved his son and was, was proud of him. The sacrifice still hurts, but I couldn't help but think right then and there, there's, there's coming a time when all of that has passed away. That's all, it's all behind us. So that even the, the things that we are suffering through in this life, they are temporary. As painful and as hard as they are, there's coming a time, friends, where we, we simply won't even remember them. So take heart in that. Like in response to Jairus, I believe God still gets up for his children. So, the question I have tonight is I have an example from either, and you have to pick which one it is, Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. So, 
Which say you? Is it Narnia or is it the rings? Lord of the rings. All right, who said Narnia first? All right, you are entitled to a free slab of premium beef jerky at any time you want. It is, in fact, the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's from one of my favorites, The Magician's Nephew. And there is a part of this book that gets me every time. Any fans of Narnia, and you read this, and there's this one part that just, you nearly want to skip it, uh, just because it's just so, it's just so wonderful. Uh, I know that's a weird way to say that, but nevertheless, if you know the story, right towards the end a bit, where Diggory is approaching Aslan, He's been confronted about his sin. He's been confronted about the treacherous events that brought the witch and all these things. But his mother is deathly ill. She's infirmed and at home, and she is his world. And he would give anything to be able to see her healed again. And now he is here in this magical land, this world of youth and, and magic, where maybe here, Maybe here he can take something back to her to make her well again. And so Diggory approaches the lion and says, But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. The lion drew a deep breath, stooped its head even lower, and gave him a lion's kiss. And at once Diggory felt that new strength and courage had gone into him. I think of that when I read Psalm 103.13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And all my friends, if you are in Christ, but you too are going through a time of suffering, maybe it's your child that's suffering in some way, and you are broken by that, or maybe there is a, a worry or an anxiety that is just tearing at you, and you bring it to the cross again and again, understand that the Father has compassion on you. He loves you. He's not looking past this. He knows your suffering. And maybe like the Apostle Paul who asked three times for this pain that's been given to him would be taken away. And Jesus responds, My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. This pain that was now in Paul's life was, had a redemptive purpose in it. And it may be that at times, that, that, well, I shouldn't say it may be, Jesus always, God always has a sovereign, redemptive purpose in everything that he does for us. So that when the Bible says all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, which things? All things. 
Be sure about that. So that when the car starts, all things work together for the good. When the car does no stop, start, all things work together for the good. When things are going well and there seems to be a wind at your back, look to Jesus, all things work together for the good. When it seems as though every obstacle conceivable is in your way constantly, all things work together for the good. And the example of Jairus and the woman is instructive for us. Friends, press through the distractions, the doubts, the fears, the loneliness, the pain, and press forward towards Jesus. Don't let anything get in your way of coming to him. Grab hold if the best you can do is falling at his feet and the closest you've got is the garment. Then grab onto the garment. And kneel before him continually and there find rest and comfort in his presence. Trusting him with our burdens. Casting them upon him because he cares for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks again for uh, this evening, for this time of fellowship, for Lord, this time of singing praises, confessing our, our faith and our dependence upon you. And Lord, of hearing uh, these stories and these, these words that are uh, written forever in your word that teach us, that compel us, that give us hope, that give us encouragement, Lord, to continue uh, to press on towards you, uh, following, Lord, where you lead. Thank you, Lord, for entering into our suffering, that you might redeem us and bring us to yourself so that we might be with you always, looking with awe into the splendor of your glory. And, Lord, until that time that we do that face-to-face, Lord, be with us as we go through this life, Lord, with its blessings as well as travails. In Jesus' name.